Well, if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 31. 1 Samuel chapter 31. And in our scripture reading, we looked at Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 24. And as we look at that passage, he's confronting us with various sins that we may be tempted to commit. And he says, ultimately, when we commit those sins, it leads to God being dishonored or God. of 1 Samuel 31 and 2 Samuel chapter 1, what it's doing is it's answering the question, how do we respond to rebellion in God's servants? How do we respond to the consequences of rebellion in God's servants? Do we rejoice or do we sorrow? You may be familiar with recent headlines concerning a university that is widely known as a Christian university, and their president just recently resigned from his position that he's held for a number of years. And as I was looking at some stuff online, I saw one person say, my response to this whole situation is to rejoice. And I just finished studying this passage, and I'm like, that is so wrong. Because believers lament rebellion and its awful consequences. Believers lament rebellion and its awful consequences. Why are you covering two different books? The end of one book and the beginning of another book. Why are you not, you know, covering 1 Samuel 31 as one sermon and then maybe in a future sermon covering 2 Samuel chapter 1. Why, why are we combining them? And the reason is that Samuel was written as one book, Samuel. And somebody had the brilliant idea a number of years ago to divide it into two books, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. And so it's one book with one theme, one idea, and unfortunately I think that they chose to divide it right smack dab in the middle of one big idea that believers lament rebellion, we don't rejoice, because rebellion brings disgrace upon God. Okay. If you want to take your Bibles, let's read 1 Samuel 31, and we'll read 2 Samuel chapter 1 as well. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines Saul's sons. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it, and when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all his men died together that same day. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his...
What happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they also found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off their heads and stripped off his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and traveled all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. Then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree of Jabesh and fasted seven days. Second Samuel chapter 1. Now it came to pass, after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziglag, on the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to him, Where have you come from? So he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. Then David said to him, How did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, The people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? Then the young man who told him said, As I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear, and indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? So I answered him, I am an Amalekite. He said to me again, Please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has taken, has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm, and have brought them here to my Lord. Therefore David took hold of his own clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him, and they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son. For the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Then David said to the young man who had told him, Where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. So David said to him, How was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called out one of the young men and said, Go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, Your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth is testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Then David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan his son, and he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. The beauty of Israel is slain in your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew nor rain upon you, nor fields of offering, for the shield of the mighty is cast away there, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. 
Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives. And in their death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the example that you give us as we think through how do we respond to sin. We pray that as we examine this passage that you would use it to convict our own hearts of our own sin and that as we are convicted by our own sin that we would be willing to come before you to confess our sin and to seek to live lives that are holy we pray that in addition as we see other sin that it would bring us to a place of lament and pain and not to a place where we rejoice in the fact that others have fallen into sin. In your name we pray. Amen. I think the big idea of 1 Samuel 31 is that the end of rebellion is pain and death. Rebellion does not lead anywhere good. And as we have studied the life of Saul over the past many chapters, we have seen a man who lives in rebellion to God. Time and time again, he rebels against God. God tells him, go and kill the Amalekites. And what does he do? He kills some of the Amalekites, but he keeps their king alive. God tells him, kill all their stuff. And he's like, I'll keep these back for sacrifice because I want to show God how dedicated I am to him. And God told them back in chapter 15, as a result of your sin, you have had the throne taken away from you. You will not long-term serve as king. And your children will not serve as king. Rebellion is hard. Rebellion is painful. And Saul, over the last few chapters, has been learning this lesson that rebellion brings pain. Rebellion results in death. And so God's sure word is going to be fulfilled before Saul's own eyes. If you remember in 1 Samuel, I believe it was uh, 28, Saul is seeking God's guidance and he can't find God's guidance. And so what does he do? He goes to a witch and he asks the witch to tell him what God wants him to know. And the witch is able to bring up Samuel. And Samuel comes and tells him, Tomorrow you and your sons will die, and all Israel will be defeated in battle. And so as we enter into this, Saul is watching all this occur, and as he watches it occur, he's seeing God's word fulfilled. And he becomes discouraged because he's been shot by an arrow, and he realizes that death is coming. He will not recover from this mortal blow. But he's afraid that he's not going to die quick enough. And he's going to be captured.
up until his death. And so he turns to suicide in his defeat. And he calls out for his armor bearer to come and to slay him and, and to finish it before the Philistines can arrive at the scene and take him captive and torture him for the last hours of his life. And the armor bearer respects God's anointed and he says, I am not able to do that. And so Saul chooses to commit suicide. And it's interesting, as, as the text works out, what happens? What's the result? The result is Israel faces humiliation because of Saul's rebellion. Look at the, the, the progression that happens. In verse 7, Saul is now dead. His sons are all dead. Israel's forces are fleeing in fear because their king has died and numerous valiant men have died. Why? Because of one man's rebellion. Immense pain for the whole nation, but it doesn't stop there. It's not just oh, the people die. What happens next? The men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead. They forsook their cities and fled. And what happens? The Philistines are like, a pre-built city. Well, isn't this nice? I mean, we don't have to worry about, you know, passing an economic, you know, thing in our Congress. I mean, this is like a stimulus package for our nation of the Philistines. And so we'll just move in here and we don't have to worry about, you know, keeping up because, I mean, it's pre-built. And so they move in. And then the next day they go and they're stripping the slain bodies and they're finding valuables. And what do they come upon? They come upon Saul's body. And all of a sudden, the menace of the Philistines, who has, you know, who has been able to be victorious at times because of God's grace, not because of his obedience, and has been a problem in the side of the Philistines, is now dead. And they look at the situation and they're like, let's take this news and go tell everybody, because this is truly great news. I mean, look at what our God has accomplished on our behalf. Go tell all our houses of worship. Verse 9. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and they fastened his body to the walls of Beth Shan. What's happening? God's name and God's anointed are coming under disgrace. This is serious pain. This is a serious problem. Is this the God that Saul served? Is this, is this David's God? A God who allows his anointed king to be defeated in this way? Is this your God? What is this telling the Philistines about Saul's God? What is this telling the Philistines about David's God? This is telling the Philistines that David's God, the one true God, is a God who can be defeated. And so it's bringing disgrace. It's bringing blasphemous thoughts against God's name. That's why they're going to their houses of worship. That's why they're going to their temples. That's why they're taking Saul's 
personal items and they're purposely taking those into their temples. Why? The idea is our God is greater than your God. We have defeated him. And now that the king and the monarchy is destroyed, you know what's next? We're not just going to take those first few cities, we're going to take the rest of it too. Because our God is greater and your God is nothing. God has fallen on disgrace. Why? Because of the consequences that came with Saul's rebellion. It's not pretty. And the men of Jabesh, Gilead, this is the first city that Saul rescued with God's help when he became king. They hear about it and they choose to honor Saul. And they go and they rescue his body and they burn it. Not because burning is a great way to deal with corpses, but because they didn't want it to be taken and used to be a means by which God's name could come under disgrace again. You know what? Our rebellion results in pain and disgrace as well. And it doesn't matter how big or how small our rebellion is, when we rebel, it brings blasphemous thoughts. It brings blasphemous ideas against the name of God. When we have an evil thought about another individual, when we covet somebody else's position at work, when we think, what an idiot as we drive through traffic, it brings disgrace upon God's view of humanity and on who God is and, and the change that he's worked about in your own life. Your rebellion, my rebellion, brings pain. It may be drastically different, and it may not be to the same extent that the pain that Saul's rebellion has brought about to the nation of Israel. The chances of your sins impacting the entire United States, probably pretty minimal. To my knowledge, none of you are planning to enter into a career of politics or anything else that gives you a national spotlight. But your rebellion will bring pain to yourself, it will bring pain to your family, and it will disgrace the name of God. And so your rebellion and my rebellion, our disobedience is not something that we just go, you know, it's, it's not that bad. No. It is that bad. And your response and my response to our rebellion must be to repent. And to turn from it. And for some of you, that means that what you are desperately in need of is to realize that there's nothing in you, there's nothing about you that could ever earn God's favor. There's nothing that you could do, no money that you could give, no service that you could be involved in that allow God to look at you and your past rebellion and say, I'm going to forgive you and spare you the pain and the disgrace that should come as a result of that little sin. And so how does God reconcile that situation? Because we're all rebellious. 
To one degree or another, we're all rebellious. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's great glory. Say, well, I only stole a dollar. You stole a dollar. And God's glory demands holiness and complete perfection. So how does God rectify the situation? How can God forgive you for the pain and the disgrace that you have wrought? He did it by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to the earth who came, who lived a perfect, sinless life, and then went to the cross and died on your behalf and on my behalf. And so I don't have to pay the penalty for my rebellion. Instead, Christ has already paid it. And the question is, will I place my faith in his finished work? And if we're willing to do that, then really we don't have to fear the pain and the disgrace. Why? Because Christ has paid it. The passage moves on, though. And this really highlights our response. How do you and I respond when public sin happens and it brings disgrace, it brings reproach upon the name of Christ? How do we respond? Rebellion calls for lament. It's not something we rejoice in. It's something we lament. It's something that we cry out to God and ask why about? It's something that calls for sorrow, not joy. This is really a flashback. When you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 1, this is, if you look, um, let's go back to 1 Samuel 31. This is, this is a few days later, okay? So at the end of verse uh, 13, fasted seven days, okay? And then 2 Samuel is a flashback, so it's four days earlier from the very end of 1 Samuel 31. All of a sudden, David has returned victoriously. It's, 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 a, it's such marked contrast to Saul, right? Saul is told in 1 Samuel 13, go and attack the Amalekites. Kill all the Amalekites, kill all that they have. And Saul disobeys. David's not told anything. He's just told to follow. And he follows God's guidance in 1 Samuel 29 and 30. And God provides him an opportunity to kill all but, what, 400 Amalekites? So he's just triumphantly slaughtered them, taken all their possessions, because God didn't tell him to kill them. He comes back. He's victorious. He's in Ziglag for two days. And all of a sudden, horrible news comes to the future king of Israel. And this man comes and he tells him, Saul and his sons are dead. That's in verse 4. The people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. And David continues to clarify the situation. And what the Amalekite is doing is he's trying to garner favor with David. He thinks that David's the anointed king, but David's not king yet. And Saul has been a menace to David, trying to kill David repeatedly over and over again. And David has been fleeing from Saul. Surely this will earn me some sort of 
court position in David's future kingdom. And so he sees Saul dead on the battlefield. He runs over, he grabs his, his crown, he grabs his little arm gold band around his arm. He's like, I'm going to take this to David. I'm going to be the first one there. I'm going to be like, guess what? I killed your arch enemy. What kind of deal can we work out for your future kingdom? And David's response is one of sorrow, one of remorse. Why? Because believers lament rebellion and its awful consequences. And so this is what he's going on. This isn't a true account. This is a forged account, a false account of what happened at the battlefield. And so he tells them, you know, I was on Mount Gilboa and I saw that he'd fallen and he wasn't going to be able to recover and he told me to come over and kill him for him. And, and he kills him, according to the account. And notice David's response. Uh, an Amalekite arrives seeking to curry favor with David and David's response is one of remorse and not remorse and lament, not joy. Look at verse 11. Therefore David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Why are they mourning for everybody? Because it's sad that somebody's died. Why are they mourning for the house of the Lord? Because God has fallen on disgrace. And they're mourning for Israel because it looks like, humanly speaking, that Israel's about to be overrun by a Philistine onslaught. This isn't a time of joy. This is a time of sorrow. Rebellion is not something we rejoice in. It's something that we sorrow in. And it, it's really remarkable, right? I mean, let's think back about what we've seen David do as he's walked by faith. What does he look forward to? What does David yearn for as he's in the wilderness and he's facing all these persecutions and he doesn't have the delicacies and the luxuries of living in the city? Remember, rice? No rice out in the wilderness. Not really, but you know. Um, how does David respond? It's lament. But how has David responded in the past? Look at 1 Samuel 24, verses 12 through 15. And in these passages, David is living by faith. He's looking forward to the day when God will come and judge Saul. He's looking forward to that day. And, and the text says that's a good thing. 1 Samuel 24, verse 12 through 15. This is in the midst of one of the times where David has a chance to kill Saul. And what does he say? Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you, as the proverb of the wicked says. As the proverb of the ancient says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? A dead dog, a flea? Therefore, let the Lord be judge, and judge between you and me, and see and plead my case, and deliver me out of your hand. And then note Saul's response in verses 16 through 21. So it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul that Saul said, 
Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Then he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. And you have shown this day how you have dealt well with me. For when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he lay him? Will he not? Uh, will he let him get away safely? Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now I know indeed that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Therefore, swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me, and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. David walks by faith. David says, I'm not going to kill him because he's God's anointed. I'm going to turn to God and say, let God judge this situation. And you read that speech from verses 12 through 15, and what do you expect on the day when God finally judges this rebellious king? Yes, God is righteous. God is just. Isn't this great? That's what you expect. Right? That's what I expect. Another illustration. Go with me to 1 Samuel 26, verses 7 through 12. 1 Samuel 26, verses 7 through 12. And this is, this is David living by faith. He's looking to God to be the judge. 1 Samuel chapter 26, verses 7 through 12. So David and Abishai, this is them going into the camp. Remember, Saul's sleeping. He's supposed to have guards who are watching for him, but they've all fallen asleep, and they're not protecting their king. And so they get into the middle of the camp, and what happens? So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and there Saul lay sleeping within the camp, with his spear stuck in the ground by his head. And Abner and the people lay all around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now, therefore, please let me strike him at once with a spear right to the earth, and I will not have to strike him a second time. I'm a brute of a man. I will pierce him once, and he will be dead. We'll not have to worry about this. We're going back to the city, David. We're not living out here in the wilderness again. And what is David's response? Once again, he chooses to live by faith. He's looking forward to the day when God will judge this man. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, Furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him. Or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But please, take now the spear and the jug of water that are by his head, and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water by his head, and they got away. And no man saw or knew it or awoke, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. What's Saul's response to David walking by faith? Look at verse 25. Then Saul said to David, May you be blessed, my son. You shall both do great things and also still prevail. So David went on his way and Saul returned to his place. What do you expect then when David gets this news? God has done what David has been longing for to happen. For God to judge this evil man. And 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11 rolls around and he's tearing his clothes and he's crying till the evening. And they're like, what? 
God has proven his character. This is what he's lived by faith in. That God is just and God will do what is right. And this is right. This is how God should respond to rebellion. But David's response isn't to rejoice in it. David's response is to say, this has brought immense disgrace upon God's name. Because sin brings disgrace upon God. And that's not something we rejoice in. The text moves on and David rebukes the Amalekite for his disregard for the anointed. He asks him who he is and he says he is the son of an Amalekite alien. And he says, go near and execute him. And David responds and explains the execution. He says, your blood is on your own head. For your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. He's an alien, i.e., he's a resident of Israel. He should know that this is God's anointed servant. And he himself is testifying, yep, I willingly killed this guy. That I knew God had anointed to be king. David's response is sorrow at sin. And as we see sin in our spouse's life, as we see sin in our children's life, as we see sin in the people that we interact with, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors, our response should not be to rejoice at the consequences that their sin brings, but rather to sorrow at what is going on, especially when it is a believer who is bringing disgrace upon the name of God. We don't rejoice at sin. We don't rejoice in the consequences of sin. We sorrow in it. And that's really what you see David do in verses 17 and following. He's writing a lament. He's crying out and he's saying, this is sad. And he repeats the phrase, how the mighty have fallen three times. And throughout the passage, he's, he's really noting that this has brought disgrace. This has brought harm. Sin is not something we rejoice in. It's something we sorrow in. The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Don't let the Philistines hear about this. Why? Because... When it's told in Gath, what's being told in Gath? Our God is greater than the Lord. Don't let that be told in Gath. Don't let that be said. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Don't let it be said in another Philistine city. Why? Because if it's said there, if this news arrives in the, the Philistine territory, what's going to happen? They're going to rejoice. Why? Because they think their God is greater than our God. And we know that's not true. Our God is dealing with his rebellious servant. And that's not something we rejoice in. Tell it not lest. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. O mountains of Gilboa. Let there be no dew, nor rain upon you, nor fields of offering, for the fields of the mighty is cast away there. The shield of Saul, not anointed with blood, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives. It's kind of interesting, right? That's not how I would have thought that David would have 
described his nemesis Saul, right? <laughs> They're beloved and pleasant in their lives. Like, as he's writing that, he's probably not remembering the last few years, right? And in their death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. This is not describing any type of sexual intimacy between David and Jonathan. The idea is Jonathan and David were men who were very similar. What happens in 1 Samuel chapter 14? Who provides the victory? God provides the victory. Why? Because one man acts by faith. Who is that one man? Jonathan. Jonathan lives by faith. He says, who knows whether God will provide victory by many or by few. He says, God can provide us victory. It's a very similar sentiment to the hearts that you see of David in 1 Samuel 17 when he goes and he fights against Goliath. What does he do? He says, God's going to provide the victory. I'm going to trust in God. The idea here is, that they are loyal to each other and more importantly they are loyal to God which allows their loyalty to one another to be stronger than you would expect between the guy who is the anointed king and the assumed anointed king so he's mourning for Jonathan Jonathan was a man who was like David. Jonathan was a man who pursued after God with his whole heart. He lived by faith. He was remarkably different from his father. Saul and Jonathan were men who loved God. And because of Saul's sin, a very godly young man dies on Mount Gilboa. And David looks at the situation and goes, why does a godly man die for an ungodly man's sin? That's what's happening here. And he looks at the situation and it brings lament, not joy. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. How do we live in light of 1 Samuel 31 and 2 Samuel chapter 1? Will bring about pain. It will bring about disgrace. Turn from it. Don't continue to pursue it. Repent. Live by faith. Follow God in obedience. Rebellion will result in pain and disgrace. It's sure. Nothing's going to change that. The only thing that's going to change that is how you're going to respond to your own rebellion. Are you going to continue to pursue it? Or are you going to forsake it? Turn to Christ. Live by faith. And then finally, rebellion demands we turn to God and lament. When you and I go through life and we see 
rebellion. And we see the consequences of rebellion. We see the pain that it brings. We might not like that person. You might not like that person and how they've lived. You might dislike their personality. And you may be tempted to be like, you know what, I didn't really like that person's personality. And now that they've, you know, God's punished them because of their sin, I'm going to rejoice in that because I really didn't really like them. They kind of rubbed me the wrong way and just kind of frustrated me. I didn't like, you know, the way they said things or whatever it is. Sometimes our hearts are tempted to go there. And what 1 Samuel 31 and 2 Samuel chapter 1 are teaching us is that the proper response of a believer is believers lament rebellion and its awful consequences. Your response and my response to sin that we see around us is not to rejoice in it. Rather, it's to lament and cry out to God. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for its truthfulness. We pray that as we meditate on these truths, that you would convict us of our own areas where we have been rebellious to you this week. We pray that as we see those areas in our lives, that we would be willing to come before you with humility and confess them and to seek to live lives of faithfulness and obedience to you. We pray this week as we see your judgment of those who do rebel against you, that as we see the consequences that we would be quick to go to you and lament and to cry out for you to change the situation and not to rejoice in the disgrace that is brought upon you and upon your servants. And in your name we pray. Amen.